Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Dr. Ben Bickman. In this episode, Dr. Bickman discusses the best diet, supplements, and lifestyle modifications to prevent and even reverse insulin resistance, the cause of type 2 diabetes. If you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also leave comments. This will help us bring great interviews to our audience. I have this theory, and I wanted to see what you, th what you think of it. Two guys are in the gym. They're both working out the same amount. One guy gets big, m very muscular, and the other guy keeps working out, but he doesn't get big at all. And my theory is that genetically, the guy that gets bigger, his body produces more insulin than the guy that doesn't. He, he, the, than the guy that doesn't uh, get as many, doesn't get as muscular. I was wondering, have you ever thought about it that way? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. I've thought about it. Uh, so I would say one, one. I I don't know that it would be a difference in absolute insulin levels, but it could be. I would say uh, there would very likely be a difference in insulin receptor density. So if we actually pulled a muscle biopsy from these two fellows, I wouldn't be surprised if the guy who's getting all jacked and big, he he probably he could very well have more insulin receptors at his muscle. So there's more of that effect. And not to change the topic too much, but there's also probably a difference in androgen receptor density. That's been shown. Testosterone receptors, for example, at muscle, that is a better predictor of muscle size, the density of receptors, than you know, actual levels of testosterone. So even in these two men, insulin could be same, testosterone could be the same. But if you look at the actual muscle cell from the guy who's getting really big, he probably has more receptors for both of those things. Very interesting. So let's talk about atherosclerosis. Hyperinsulinemia, elevated insulin, makes all stages of atherosclerosis worse. Can you talk a little bit about that and explain why? Yeah, yeah, it sure does. I like how you emphasized how it's all stages. Um, if we look at atherosclerosis, I, I would want to just say at the outset here, we don't we don't exactly know what causes the formation of an atherosclerotic plaque. Um, we have, we have a, a predominant theory, which I'll kind of allude to, but the actual step-by-step -step mechanisms is kind of poorly understood. So, so we're all kind of acting on a certain amount of faith, but there's a consensus and I'm fine with the consensus. But basically, insulin is, is waging war on the cardiovascular system. Well, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, I should say. And one thing is that insulin resistance is the leading cause of hypertension. So the average individual who has hypertension is very likely insulin resistant. In fact, to the, to the point, to the degree that I strongly believe that anyone, uh, insulin resistance uh, is often the earliest manifestation is going to be hypertension. So if someone has hypertension, if someone's listening to this, um, they probably have insulin resistance. Not always. But, but I would say that's the most common cause. <clears throat> so that hypertension is going to be increasing the stress in blood vessels. And that's just going to make 
you know, damage to blood vessels and the, you know, the, the sort of propagation or the initiation of a plaque just all the more likely. But with regards to the conventional consensus on atherosclerosis, it's basically a vascular injury. And then we have this kind of combined with this invasion of lipids like, like cholesterol, cholesterol esters or free fatty acids. And then, and then we have the, the uh, invasion of macrophages into the area. And so then we have this kind of fatty inflamed little lesion or area of the blood vessel. And that's basically the core of the atherosclerotic plaque. Now, I will just have to, I want to back up and just say, in that process of lipids coming to the area and promoting atherosclerosis, which is very, very commonly believed, we all say that cholesterol is this main driver of atherosclerosis, and there's tremendous evidence to refute that idea, but there's evidence to support it. I think it really matters on the degree to which those lipids, those, those fatty acids, have been oxidized or have become what's called a lipid peroxide. And that once again comes back to soybean oil, but we can measure something called oxidized LDL. In other words, the degree to which the LDL molecule is carrying lipids that have become oxidized or basically have been attacked by oxidative stress. These lipid peroxides or these oxidative stress fats, they are very damaging to cells. And so that's why you have macrophages come in and try to eat these things. They try to eat these um, lipid peroxides or these oxidative stress fats. And then they themselves get too fat and they start releasing cytokines, these inflammatory markers to have more macrophages come. And so then this little atherosclerotic plaque just keeps accumulating fat which is generally because the person's eating a lot of soybean oil, which is, again, the single most commonly consumed fat in our diet nowadays. And, and so they keep insulting the body with these very, very oxidizable fats, and they just keep promoting the inflammation, and that's the heart of the plaque. So insulin resistance, I, I, just to kind of bring it back on to topic, uh, it is both promoting this dyslipidemia, um, so bad, bad lipid levels, and it's increasing blood pressure. Now, one interesting aside, in a way to kind of put insulin to the side, and I can't believe I'm saying that because I'm so obsessed with insulin resistance, there is actually some meaningful evidence to show that atherosclerotic plaques could be a result of infections in the blood vessels. So when you actually um, pull out a plaque from a coronary artery, you can often detect multiple bacterial infections in that plaque. And so there is evidence, and anyone could look this up, go to Google Scholar or PubMed and just look at atherosclerosis infections, and you'll find multiple lines of evidence with basically several scientists and physicians. They, they kind of posit this hypothesis that atherosclerosis is just a result of an infection in the blood vessel. And frankly, the idea is pretty compelling, but that has nothing to do with insulin resistance. So it's not too sexy to me. Well, there's always multiple causes, and they, you know, yeah. it's not always that easy. But there's, there yeah. is evidence that shows that hyperinsulinemia causes plaques in small blood vessels, causes angiogenesis, and decreases nitric oxide synthesis. Yes. And if you could- Yes, that's right. That. Yeah, so the nitric oxide, actually, I, that was one of the mechanisms I kind of refer to when I talk about the increase in blood pressure. Um, so uh, one of insulin's main effects when insulin is working is that it comes to the, the, what's called the endothelial cells, the cells that are lining our blood vessels, and it will st um, stimulate the production of a molecule called nitric oxide, which 
induces vasodilation. It helps these blood vessels expand and relax. And of course, as the volume of the vessels going up, pressure starts to go down. There's just more room for the blood to flow through. And so that, that loss of nitric oxide is undoubtedly one of the key events in driving hypertension. It's also a key event in, in driving retinopathy, and, and at least part of it. And so too is um, the alterations in the aldosterone signaling. Basically, insulin increases. It, it forces this production of a hormone called aldosterone. And aldosterone, in turn, forces the kidneys to retain salt and water, even when it shouldn't. And so the body just gets basically overfull. We have too much blood, too much volume, in our, uh, too much water in our blood. And so our blood volume starts to go up and that starts to push blood pressure up again. And even the aldosterone signaling is, is also relevant to, to eye health. Uh, Joseph Kraft said that vascular damage occurs from elevated insulin way before blood sugar goes up. Is that something that you would agree with? Oh, 100%. And I even sort of alluded to that when I mentioned that comment earlier, just with regards to retinopathy, where so often people even look at that as a glucose-derived problem. But we know that you can start to detect eye problems well before the glucose changes. And once you, if you take a type 2 diabetic, if you put them on insulin therapy, and I, I explicitly mentioned this a little bit ago, their glucose levels go to wonderful levels. Their glucose is perfect but now they're swimming in a sea of insulin because a type two diabetic already has high insulin. And now with insulin therapy, you just artificially push it up even higher. But the beginning of exogenous insulin or insulin therapy accelerates retinopathy. So to say that it's a glucose problem, I think is not accurate because it's the glucose goes to normal. It's the insulin that we've been messing around with. And, and Dr. Kraft uh, also mentioned how elevated insulin is one of the earliest causes of heart problems, cardiovascular disease, heart, heart attacks, arrhythmias, et cetera. Yeah, in fact, I think he, he had a clever little line, and I think I quoted in my book, but it's something like uh, heart disease is, the early, is, is basically undiagnosed diabetes. Uh, and, and that's just, just because it's so derivative of insulin resistance. And elevated insulin also affects and elevates cortisol, which could affect people's sleep. So if elevated insulin is high and it affects people's sleep and you lose uh, magnesium, it could also, it could also affect, uh, uh, it could also, it, it could also affect your blood pressure. Oh yeah, well, well certainly. In fact, cortisol, cortisol is, I, no other way to say this, is one hell of a hormone. And, and by that, I mean to say if it's high, it is wrecking the body. Um, it's, it, is, it, is, it is disastrous for human health to have elevated cortisol. Um, and, and cortisol will induce rapid insulin resistance throughout the body. I mean, you can, you can take someone who's on a cortisol-like molecule in order to control inflammation, like cortisone or prednisone or dexamethasone, and they will become insulin resistant very, very quickly because of that therapy. Uh, so yeah, cortisol is very antagonistic to insulin to the point that it causes powerful insulin resistance. And that matters for reasons you said. I like that you mentioned sleep. One of the main reasons 
that cortisol will often be elevated in a person is because of sleep deprivation, which of course nowadays is so ubiquitous because we're on our phones or screens too late into the night. And, and I would add, we eat too late into the night. And going to bed with a full stomach is one of the worst things, some, like, like stuffed, if they're stuffed, that's one of the worst things someone can do for their sleep. I guarantee anyone listening to this, if you just stop eating dinner at five or six, just stop. You will sleep so much better. Give yourself about four hours before you go to bed, and I guarantee sleep will get better. And osteoporosis or osteopenia, when, we, when you combine elevated cortisol and elevated insulin. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the cortisol will induce the degradation or the, the, the breakdown of bone. Um, like it does, it induces the breakdown of everything. And so that's going to be directly driving osteoporosis or the kind of thinning bone. But also as the bone cells become insulin resistant, you've lost some of that protective anabolic effect at the bone cell. And the same thing goes for cartilage, those, those chondrocytes that, that are the predominant cells in cartilage, same phenomenon can happen there too, driving joint problems beyond just bone problems. And how is it related to Alzheimer's elevated? Yeah. Yeah, so Alzheimer's is so connected to insulin resistance that many people refer to it as insulin resistance of the brain or type 3 diabetes. I don't like that last classification because that makes people think that it's something different from just run-of-the-mill type 2 diabetes. It's not. It's just when the type 2 diabetes or basically the insulin resistance is affecting the brain. But, but briefly, um, neurons in the brain have insulin-dependent glucose um, transporters. So some of the glucose that the brain is getting comes because insulin tells it to take it up. Not all of it. It has some insulin independent mechanisms, thank goodness, but at least a portion, about 20 to 30% of the glucose uptake is going to be through these insulin signaling doorways. Insulin comes and knocks on the door and then allows the glucose to come in. So if you are insulin resistant, then you get less glucose into the brain. And that is a phenomenon that is detectable before the person is, is demonstrably experiencing cognitive decline. Basically, what I'm saying is you could, if, if you had, if someone went to the university, this is again, almost totally an academic exercise, but you can measure reduced brain glucose uptake in people years before they have any detectable Alzheimer's disease. And that's a phenomenon referred to as brain glucose hypometabolism, hypo being lower than normal. So the brain just isn't getting enough of its energy from glucose alone. And this is a problem that is pervasive among neurological disorders, not only Alzheimer's disease, but you can detect it also in Parkinson's disease and even things not related to dementia like migraines. And interestingly, in all of those disorders, when you have that kind of energetic gap where the brain you know, the brain is an energy hog. It has a very high metabolic rate. If it can't get all of its energy from glucose, well, then it's going to try to get energy from something else. But the only other, you know, something else, the only other nutrient that the brain really uses is ketones. And the problem is, of course, in our modern environment, a person will often have nary a whiff of ketones, if I can say that, in the blood. They basically have no ketones because insulin inhibits ketogenesis, the production of ketones. And most people are, like I said earlier, they're constantly living a life with elevated insulin due to their dietary habits. But, but it also is increasingly a therapy. You can take someone with full-blown Alzheimer's disease 
And if you just put them into ketosis, and you had Dr. Bredesen on, so this is his um, bread and butter, you put them into ketosis, and, and you can immediately detect changes in their cognition. I'm not saying they're suddenly as sharp as ever. No, that's an irreversible cognitive decline, but they get better. They can, they can talk a little better. They can understand. They can do a little. They can get themselves dressed. And this is all published data, these published case studies. But the, the, the short and skinny of it is if someone has ketones available, the ketones can make up for that energetic gap that the brain is suffering from. And once the brain has all the energy that it needs, then it can start to operate better than it was before. Just explain briefly what ketones are and how to raise ketones. Yeah, yeah, so ketones are a nutrient. They have a caloric value. So cells can pull in ketones and you know, basically burn them like it would glucose or fat and, and get energy from it. And a ketone is derived from fat. Basically, when the body is in a state of prolonged fat burning, it starts to, uh, and this can only happen when insulin is low. Not to go off on the tangent too much, but insulin is what dictates fuel use in the body. The two main fuels in the body are blood, is blood sugar and, and fat. Those are the two main metabolic fuels, and insulin dictates which fuel is being used. If insulin is elevated, the body is basically stuck in sugar burning mode. If insulin is down, then the body shifts over to fat burning mode. And when insulin has been down for about 20 hours or so due to fasting or a low carbohydrate diet, then the body is basically burning more fat than it needs to burn. But it can't stop burning fat because insulin is low. And so that kind of excess fat burning turns into ketones. So ketones are like little pieces of burned fat that the body can use for energy, um, including the brain. The brain very hungrily, greedily uses ketones. The moment ketones go up, the brain starts using them. And indeed, the brain can supply up to 70%, I'm sorry, ketones can supply up to 70% of the brain's energy when, when ketones are elevated. So, you know, basically puts glucose into second place when it comes to being the primary fuel for the brain. So that's how we make ketones. And again, that only happens when insulin is low, and, and which, of course, for the average person, never happens. Their insulin is constantly elevated. I heard Dr. Rosedale and his writings and his speakings that your longevity is based on how, long, how much fat you burn versus how much sugar you burn. So if you're constantly burning fat, you're going to live longer versus burning sugar. That is well said. I've never heard him say that, but I think it's genius. Um, if, and that, once again, is still sort of reflective of that idea of insulin and insulin resistance. If someone is hyperinsulinemic insulin resistance, you know, and remember insulin sensitivity being one of the key factors of longevity. It's just, if the insulin is always elevated, then you're always in sugar burning mode. If insulin is low, well, then you're in fat burning mode. So keep insulin low and burn fat. And, and really, it's also reflective of this idea um, that you, you burn what you eat. Uh, you know, so, and that, that's just because of what these nutrients do to insulin, that dictates what we do with our energy and energy use. Uh, even hypothyroid, if, you're, if your insulin is high, you, in the liver, you're converting T4 to T3, the active thyroid. Insulin actually prevents the conversion of T4 to T3, or at least lowers it. Yeah, that's, yes, excellent. Uh, and, and insulin and thyroid also have a, a more nuanced relationship. That is a very direct effect, but extremely relevant. 
um, thyroid changes the number of insulin receptors on fat cells. And so it's interesting where um, low thyroid levels actually result in increasing insulin receptors at fat cells. So the fat cells become more sensitive to insulin and, and thus can grow faster, um, likely being part of the reason someone with low thyroid levels gains weight. Um, part of it could be this increase of insulin receptors at the fat cells. And as far as abnormal lipids, we talked a little bit about abnormal lipids and how elevated insulin could affect abnormal limit, uh, lipids, what, whether we're talking about triglycerides or small particles. If you could make a comment on that. Yeah, yeah. So insulin will directly um, increase triglyceride production, and, and that would be, be then carried on lipoproteins like VLDL and LDL. So it directly increases the production of VLDL and LDL, which are thought to be more atherogenic or more related to plaque formation. And insulin reduces HDL levels. So it's directly antagonistic to the production of HDL from the liver, which is where that's made, like all the lipoproteins. So you're, you're really attacking these in the perfectly wrong ways, increasing triglyceride, which is not good, reducing HDL, which is also generally considered not good. But also a little more nuance is that insulin can change the, the size of LDL molecules. And so we think about low density lipoproteins, LDL as just being a homogenous group. You know, it's kind of, they're all one and the same. But the reality is that we can really change the composition of these LDL molecules and that can change the size. So when insulin is low, a person will have a bigger LDL, which is called LDL pattern A or type A. When insulin, sorry, that's when insulin is low. If insulin is low, the person has more LDL pattern A, the bigger, more buoyant LDL. When insulin is high, then it gets it becomes a more dense LDL, which is referred to as a pattern B. And that is much more likely to cause a heart disease. That is significantly more correlated, this LDL pattern B, than just looking at total LDL. So even when someone's looking at LDL levels, that doesn't tell you the size or the type of LDL you have, and you want to be an LDL pattern A. And frankly, if you want to know whether you're pattern A or pattern B, look at your triglyceride to HDL ratio, the one I mentioned earlier. If that ratio is below 1.5, then you're mostly pattern A, which is the good one. As far as being toxic to mitochondria and making people tired. Yeah, with insulin, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So insulin, insulin is necessary for mitochondrial biogenesis. We have to have insulin there for normal mitochondrial health. But part of the problem in the hyperinsulinemic state is, well, there could be multiple problems. One could be that you're loading the mitochondria with more energy than it needs to burn. And we can see this with like fats, for example. If insulin is high, it can facilitate or accelerate fatty acid uptake into the cell. And then the cell has to start burning this because it, depending on the cell type, like a muscle cell, it has a limited capacity for storing. And you basically are pushing energy into the mitochondria to be burned, but it can't burn at all. And so you end up getting these partially burned, you know, these partially, these kind of partial breakdown products of, of burned fat and they can drive insulin resistance. So it starts to feed back on itself, unfortunately, but essentially 
you're forcing the mitochondria to try to burn more energy than it needs to burn, and that becomes a problem. Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. So you did a beautiful job of explaining all the problems from elevated insulin. Let's, let's talk about what causes elevated insulin and then in turn, of course, how do we prevent it and prevent us from getting diabetes and all the side effects from elevated insulin, which are basically very similar to the side effects of elevated sugar. So let's talk about what does elevate an insulin in an abnormal way in our body. How can we protect it? And, I, and I, it's about 80% of the people, right? The population have some yes. form of insulin resistance. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. So this is an extremely common problem, which makes it all the more relevant for someone like in your profession to be wondering, well, might this most common of all problems be partially causing some of these eye problems? I think it's very, very warranted and, and well, necessary. So what is causing the high insulin? And that matters because I believe that high insulin is the main driver of insulin resistance. Chronically pushing up insulin starts to result in this resistance to insulin. And so, and that's, that's a fundamental biological pr uh, principle. Too much of something will result in a resistance to that something. The body will start to downgrade its responsiveness to whatever it may be, including insulin. So high insulin is a key cause of insulin resistance. Some other causes are things like inflammation, like if someone has an autoimmune disease or an infection, that can cause insulin resistance, and <clears throat> cortisol or stress. Stress is a cause of insulin resistance. We've talked amply about cortisol. So if, 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 insulin, if high insulin is the main cause of insulin resistance, and I believe it is, the, the logical question then to address the problem is, well, then how can we lower insulin? And it is simple. Now, me saying it's simple does not mean it's easy because changing lifestyle habits is not easy, but the idea is simple. And I basically break it down into three pillars. Um, and I, I elaborate this in the book. So the last third of the whole book is basically what to do about insulin resistance. How do you address it? And the pillars control carbohydrates. So, and by that, I basically mean be smart about your starches and your sugars. Focus on natural sources like fruits and vegetables and avoid processed things like cereal, bread, crackers, chips, etc. Those are going to spike your insulin 10 times over normal and keep it in elevated for up to four hours. Don't touch the stuff. So control carbohydrates. Second, prioritize protein and, and focus on animal protein. That's not popular these days. Everyone wants to focus on the latest vegetable protein. Uh, like pea protein and soy protein, but that is junk. I don't care what the plant protein is, be careful with it. And I'm kind of speaking in strong terms here, but I, I, I just, I have to, because it is so pervasive nowadays to focus on plant protein, but it is inferior in every possible way, demonstrably inferior, like clinical evidence to show plant proteins are not as good. And the reasons for this are, are like, I'd say threefold. One, they don't have the full complement of amino acids that animal proteins do. And the best animal proteins are whey and egg whites. So they don't have the full complement of amino acids. Two, all of these plant proteins have 
things that prevent their own digestion in humans. And these are called anti-nutrients. And it seems like I am now some, some uh, I'm, I'm spouting myths here. It is true. Anyone who wants to look into it, please just look into things called like phytic acids or tannins or, or trypsin inhibitors. <clears throat> these are molecules that come with these plant proteins that, uh, uh, th that will physically block the body's ability to digest them. So what, you're not only not getting the full complement of amino acids you want, but then two, you're not even getting the amino acids you think you're getting because of these anti-nutrients. And then third, when you are concentrating protein from a plant that is very poor in protein, like peas, you end up getting a lot of stuff you don't want, not to mention the anti-nutrients that I just, well, I just mentioned the anti-nutrients, but, but this can include heavy metals like lead and arsenic. It is known that these plant proteins, even organic, in fact, sometimes organic was even worse. Someone, you guys, I encourage anyone to look up the work of a nonprofit third-party testing called the Clean Label Project and look up their results. But the most offensive proteins that had the highest levels of lead and arsenic, these toxic heavy metals are, are plant proteins. Because and like I said, you know, it may take a thousand peas to get a serving of protein because peas are so deficient in protein. You know, it's laughable to think that our ancestors would have gotten protein from plants. You know, it may take a thousand peas to get protein and then you get the protein you want in one serving of protein. But in the process of concentrating a thousand proteins, all their substance, you end up getting these minerals that a plant naturally has and is naturally pulling up. You just get too much of it. And that's things like lead and arsenic. So anyway, that's a tangent. My second point was prioritize protein. Make sure you're getting enough. And then third, and this matters, don't fear fat. Dietary fat has no effect on insulin. Oh, well, only if you're eating you know, hundreds and hundreds of calories of pure fat can it affect your insulin. And even then, it's very, very modest. But what's important about that is that that's a way of nourishing your body, giving your body calories, actual energy, but not spiking your insulin. So that is the power of dietary fat. And then I'll just add to, to, to conclude this thought, in nature, fat and protein come together. Uh, and that, that, that is for a reason. <clears throat> so all those best animal sources of protein, like dairy and egg and, and meat, they all have fat with them. They don't really have carbohydrate. I mean, milk will have carbohydrate with it, but the other sources don't have really any carbohydrate. Uh, and, and, and part of this genius is that uh, fat helps protein work better. There are studies in humans to show that if you give humans just a load of protein, they will get a certain amount of muscle growth. But if you give them protein in, and fat together, then you even get more muscle growth beyond the protein alone. And part of that could have to do with the fact that when you eat fat with protein, it helps our intestines digest the protein better. So fat helps protein digestion. So you're getting more of those amino acids that you want. And the pea protein is not absorbed very good, probably half as well as uh, from an animal protein. And soy, which is probably the worst. Yes. Uh, if you exercise, your testosterone doesn't, it doesn't go up. If you could yeah, that's right. That's right. In fact, I, I shared that study on social media a little while ago. I'm thrilled you're mentioning it. Yeah, so you, when, when a man exercises, you have a typical increase in testosterone. That's expected it happens. It's natural. When you supplement him with whey, you still get it. 
the, 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 the testosterone bump is there. When you supplement him with soy protein, it goes away. You, you significantly inhibit that testosterone boost. Yes, no one should be taking soy protein in any way. Sugar and fructose. Uh, what does that do? How does that raise insulin? Yeah, so um, sugar is, is a mix of glucose and fructose. It's a one-to-one -one mix. And the glucose will spike insulin. Uh, and then insulin will kind of tell the body to store that energy. In contrast, fructose won't spike insulin. But what's so interesting about fructose is that it doesn't need to spike insulin. The liver just starts turning fructose to fat even without insulin telling it to do so. And there was a fascinating study in humans where they gave these two different groups of humans two drinks. They had the same amount of calories. One drink was high in glucose and the other drink was high in fructose. Over the course of this study, both groups got fat, but where they got fat was very telling. The glucose drinkers put most of their fat in their subcutaneous fat cells. So the fat cells that we can jiggle and pinch the fat right beneath our skin. The fructose drinkers put relatively more of their fat in their visceral fat tissue. So the fat tissue that's around their liver and their intestines and kidneys and, and pancreas, where you don't want to store fat, that's a much more pathogenic or disease-related um, place to store fat, including promoting insulin resistance and more inflammatory. So fructose won't cause an insulin spike but that does not mean you give it a, a, free, a free ride here or, or you know, a, a free pass. It's, it has its own effects and it's so, it's so lipogenic or so fat forming that it doesn't even need insulin to tell it to do that like glucose does. There's been some studies that suggest that blue light at night might actually increase insulin resistance. Do you have any, any comments on that? You know, I am not overly familiar with that area of research. Um, I will say that um, light does have an effect on fat cells. So we actually, I don't know how related to blue light it would be, but the counter, if you look on towards the opposite end of the spectrum with red light, we've just started a study here where, where we are pulling fat biopsies from people right, right by their belly button. And we're doing this before and after 30, 30 days exposure to near infrared light therapy which can, you know, in, kind of get into the skin, you know, about a centimeter or two. And so potentially affect the fat cells that way. So we're, I'm looking at it the opposite perspective. So blue light, I don't know. Red light, there could be a metabolic effect of red light due to what it's doing at the fat cells, basically accelerating metabolic rate. But that's not confirmed yet. We're testing that now. And certain medications could increase insulin. You know, even ones oh, that oh, yeah. used for diabetics, such as secretagogues. Do you want to make a few yep. comments on that? Oh, yeah. I love that you mentioned that. Um, and, and that stems from a topic kind of we brought up at the very beginning of this discussion. When we look at diabetes and metabolic problems through the lens of glucose, well, then we don't care what insulin does. We think all, we just want to do whatever we can to lower the glucose because that's the only marker that matters. And so we will give them drugs that push the insulin up even higher than before. And like you said, these are drugs called insulin secretagogues. And generally, they will make all the problems worse. Like, like sulfonylureas, which are the classical, um, more common insulin secretagogue, the person will get fatter and more insulin resistant 
but their glucose levels will be fine. Now, I will say that more and more, a commonly used insulin secretagogue are GLP-1 receptor agonists. And they're interesting because they will increase insulin production, but they also activate glucagon receptors, which can, as we know, offset some of what insulin is doing. And so the GLP-1 receptor agonists appear to have some way to mitigate just the pure negative of increasing insulin. How about uh, a lack of nutrients to increase insulin resistance, such as vitamin D, magnesium, chromium, carnitine, any feeling there? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I can't, I can't speak with too much authority in that, but, but I did devote one small section of the book to this because the evidence is just so compelling. Yeah, there are certain mineral and vitamin deficiencies that appear to absolutely drive insulin resistance. And I say that simply because like vitamin D and chromium in particular, where those results were so obvious, if they are low and you supplement them to bring them up to normal, that will be the only variable you've changed and they become more insulin sensitive. So it strongly leads us to conclude that it's the deficiency that's partially driving it. And that matters because the food we eat is absolutely less nutrient dense than we used to, including these kind of micronutrients, like these minerals, as we are depleting, you know, modern factory farming is depleting the soil ever more. We have to eat more and more of these foods in order to get the same amount of nutrients, especially if it's coming from carbohydrates. Now, because of the wonder of fermenting and, and intestinal bacteria in ruminant animals like, like cattle, beef um, continues to still be a wonderful source of these, even these micronutrients. But then other things like vitamin D, it's, it's particularly unfortunate nowadays where everyone's kind of locked up indoors. Sun exposure, UV radiation is one of the main sources of usable or main um, sort of intermediating events that helps our body make vitamin D. And now we're getting less than ever. And so metabolic health becomes compromised and even immune health becomes compromised as vitamin D is relevant to both of those. How about eating organic environmental toxins? Yeah, so there are molecules that are ubiquitous in the environment that we breathe in or drink or eat that absolutely can drive metabolic problems. And some of these are well known, like bisphenol A, BPA, which is essentially, it's almost guaranteed it's going to be in anything that is a soft, malleable plastic. The harder the plastic, typically the better it will be in this regard. But then other molecules like diethylstilbestrol, which are in um, pesticides and detergents, these are molecules that are all around us that, that appear to drive insulin resistance. And I say appear because in evidence, the, in humans, the evidence is correlational, but in rodents, you, it's causal. You can actually increase the BPA, for example, and then make the animal start to get fat and insulin resistant. Something that was very hot last year and the year before, dysbiosis, where do you fall on there? Do you think that we have enough evidence that we could say dysbiosis causes insulin resistance? Yeah. So are you, you're thinking of the gut microbiota? Yeah. 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 So I actually think, I think the enthusiasm on, on gut bacteria has, is, has outpaced the data. And, and in other words, I'm a little, I'm a little agnostic. I think that gut bacteria probably matter in humans. Uh, I mean, no doubt that, no, no doubt gut bacteria matters. I'll say that. Gut bacteria is important, but we just don't quite understand it enough yet. 
I don't think we really, because it seems like every new study is in some way challenging an old study. So I, again, I do think gut bacteria matters um, and someone should focus on, I, I do think that, that fermented foods, you know, I think those, that used to be part of our um, ancestral eating. You know, any carbohydrate we ate, it was almost always going to be fermented in some way. We didn't have refrigeration. We didn't have processed foods that could last on a shelf. Even dairy was fermented. And what's interesting about fermented foods, it's, it's kind of two benefits. One, you're getting the bacteria, but then two, these bacteria in the fermented foods eat the sugar. They eat the starches and the sugars from the foods. And so that's less starch and sugar that we have to eat because the bacteria already did it for us. So dysbiosis, I, I think there's probably something there, but I would encourage anyone to be a little cautious when they hear someone else talking about gut bacteria with too much authority. It just seems like we, we, we still know so little about it. And the concept of intermittent fasting, what do you think is the best way to eat? Is it a big br breakfast and a late lunch and then cut it off? Or do you think three times a day? You mentioned six times a day. Is it definitely a no-no? It'll keep your insulin level high all day long, which is exactly what we don't want. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I do um, believe intermittent fasting is very effective for improving metabolic health and insulin resistance. In, in fact, to the point that in the book, I mentioned the three pillars. I actually have the fourth, which I say is watch the clock, but basically don't feel compelled to eat all the time. And I, three meals a day, I, I think is unnecessary. Not that you, someone can't do it, um, but I think there's a lot of power in, in cutting out a meal if, if it works for the person's lifestyle. And I appreciate that when it comes to meals, there are external pressures. Like, for example, with me, if I didn't eat dinner with my family, my wife and my young kids, it's going to be weird. You know, we're all sitting around the counter or the kitchen table, and I'm the one not eating. It's just going to be awkward. And so, I won't fast through dinner. I typically fast through breakfast where I'll just have a cup of tea and then I'll have lunch and then I'll, and then dinner. And then once dinner, when I'm, when it's at six o'clock, I just do my absolute best to stop eating. I just, I will sleep so much better. Now, having said that, <clears throat> I actually do think the situation you just described is probably best. Eat a bigger breakfast, eat a good lunch, and then be done. Um, when I have done that, the very few times I've done that in my adult life, again, just because of my family, um, I feel so much better. I don't have cravings in the evening. I sleep better, but it's just hard to do it again because dinner is the most social of all the meals for the average person. And so whether it's with family, friends, or uh, anyone else, it's, it's hard to avoid dinner. Just like I said, it's the social meal. Whereas breakfast for me, while I do have, we have breakfast as a family, um, if I don't eat breakfast with the kids, um, they don't even, they don't care. They don't even notice. You know, I'm talking with them. We're just sort of, it's more of just a casual situation I've found, at least in my family dynamic. It doesn't disrupt the family if I fast through breakfast. So that's the one I do. We can't really have a discussion about uh, elevated insulin or insulin resistance without mentioning metabolic syndrome. Is there much of a difference between insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome? Is it the same? It is the same. Yep. Metabolic syndrome is just the latest name for this, this, this kind of constellation of health disorders that we've seen for decades now. 
In fact, some of the earliest, before it was called the metabolic syndrome, it was called the insulin resistance syndrome. And I actually prefer that name because I think it's more accurate. With metabolic syndrome, it sounds like this vague unknown, this ambiguous problem. But with insulin resistance syndrome, you know the enemy. You can understand the culprit and, un and then appreciate that all of these metabolic problems that you're worried about are stemming from the insulin resistance. Are there any supplements that you recommend to make us more insulin sensitive? Yeah, so I, there are. Uh, I, th I think that everyone should be taking a vitamin D3 supplement unless they're just outdoors all the time. And this becomes even more relevant if someone has a darker complexion. The darker the complexion, the more sun exposure that person would need to make vitamin D, uh, especially vitamin D3. So take a vitamin D3 K2 supplement. Um, I also think that uh, we are increasingly deficient in iodine, interestingly. And that's because we're all eating these kind of sexy little gourmet salts these days and they're not supplemented with iodine like the boring old table salt used to, um, that, that was supplemented for a very specific reason. And because we don't eat a lot of um, seafood and, and shore-based foods like, like oysters, et cetera, um, which are naturally high in iodine, then, then we need to make sure we're getting iodine. So uh, vitamin D is a supplement that my family and I, that I give my little babies and my wife and I, we take that every day. Omega-3 fats, also are one that we focus on, um, DHA and EPA. And then um, a, a potassium iodide, which is a little droplet that you can just buy really easily. Just one little drop a day and you get all you need. But that's just because we don't use that boring old table salt anymore that is, was always iodinated. And, and a lot of people don't. Everyone's got these clever salts, which are wonderful. They have wonderful other um, minerals in them, um, but they don't have iodine. So you need to, and, and, if, and because we don't eat, a lot of seafood, you got to get that iodine another way. And that the almost only other way to do that is through supplements. So those are kind of, those are really the only main supplements we take. And I want to finish with, you talk about fats. If you could talk about the good fats, the bad fats, and what should we avoid? We talked a little bit about omega-6. We have to be careful of the soy, but if you could just kind of put it in a capsule for us. Yeah. Yeah. So in my mind, the best fats are the fats that we as humans have been eating since the beginning of recorded history, and that is animal fats and fruit fats. And the fruit fats may be kind of unexpected, but that's basically just the flesh of a fruit, not the seed. But when you press the flesh of a fruit, like a coconut and an olive, which is something our ancestors have been able to do, well, forever, because you didn't need a lot of technology to do it, you squish the flesh of that fruit and you get an oil from it. So those are what I consider the healthy fats, animal fats and fruit fats. And at the risk of kind of self-promotion here, um, a couple of my brothers and I made a, a, a meal replacement shake um, that, that focuses on these kinds of fats and the best animal proteins in that one-to-one -one ratio. Uh, and that's just because as for me, as much as I focus on insulin resistance, it just it seemed like there wasn't a convenient way to really nourish the body and keep insulin in check. Anyone who wants to learn more, I'll say no more about it than this. Go to a website called Get Health, and health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com, um, to just get any details you want on the shake and some of the science behind it. So the fats, though, to answer your question, animal fats and fruit fats, those are the ones to focus on. And, and then the, the, the refined seed oils, like soybean oil, 
and canola oil, avoid those. But I will say that not all seeds are bad. Flax and chia, I think, can be very beneficial. They can be very much a part of a smart insulin-lowering diet. And, and, and interesting with those, eating them in a, like a milled form, like crushed or ground, um, they are high in an omega-3 that is actually the, the most oxidized or the most burned, I should say, because I've used oxidized in a different context already. It is the most readily burned fat of all the long-chain fats in the human diet, which actually makes it the most ketogenic of all the long-chain fats. But that's a bit of an aside. So I don't mean to wage war on all seeds. Flax and chia seeds can be very healthy, but those refined seed oils like soybean, canola, corn, avoid them. If people want to find out more about you and your work and the products that you've developed and your book, how can they do that? Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate that question. Um, yeah, so the book is Why We Get Sick. Um, everyone who's, if, if you're curious and if, with everything Carrie and I have been talking about, you will love the book. Uh, it's, again, Why We Get Sick. It, you can buy it anywhere books are sold, online or, or most bookstores these days. Um, and then the, the product, it's, it's just this meal replacement shake. And, and again, it was just because I, my brothers and I just sensed a gap. And I'll tell you, it's fun. It's fun to be able to work with a couple of my brothers. But that's the website I mentioned earlier, gethealthhlth.com. And then I'll be providing blog and ebook content and maybe even some video content there soon. Uh, and then lastly, I'm fairly active on social media. Um, more and more Instagram, actually. I kind of enjoy the crowd on Instagram. Um, it's not as hostile as Twitter and not quite as, not quite as um, overwhelming as Facebook. But on all of those platforms, I just share science. I don't share, you know, pictures of me, certainly no pictures of my family. It's, it's not what I'm doing or what I'm eating or anything. It's, it's just science. And that is uh, Ben Bickman, PhD. And no, no C in Bickman, B-I-K-M-A-N, Ben Bickman, PhD. Well, I just want to thank Ben for joining me today. He's a wealth of knowledge. He, he was very, very forthcoming in sharing his knowledge. And I want everybody to go out and get his book, Why We Get, Why we get Sick to learn more about insulin resistance. As we're on this crusade together, my bold men unite on this crusade together to prevent people from becoming diabetic, catch them early so that we could rever reverse it so you don't get sick and you don't get, and, and God forbid die from, from elevated insulin and then becoming diabetic. So for Open Your Eyes, this is Dr. Kerry Gell. Thank you for joining me today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 